I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Tears of Eden, a nonprofit supporting survivors of spiritual abuse from the evangelical community and home of the Uncertain podcast, is hosting its first in-person retreat con October 20th through 22nd. This retreat con will have the intimacy of a retreat with the intentionality of a conference. In partnership with the I Got Out movement, the retreat con will also feature a special event story jam highlighting survivor stories live and in person. Registration is currently open and spots are limited. Sign up with a link in the show notes. This is one of two final episodes in season four. We'll be back for season five in January to kick off Spiritual Abuse Awareness Month. So I'm going to take a moment to give a little bit of a personal address. As more folks have found Tears of Eden, the responsibilities for maintaining the nonprofit have increased. So when I say every week on every episode that this podcast and the work of Tears of Eden is supported by the generosity of listeners like you, I mean it. Financial resources are and will continue to be a reason for the sustainability of this organization. So if you are a dedicated listener, or if this is your first time, I invite you to consider giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly supporter. Your gifts go directly to supporting survivors of spiritual abuse and religious trauma. And you aren't just supporting the podcast. You're supporting our website, which is a hub of resources for survivors. You're supporting our support groups and online community, and you're supporting our first ever in-person retreat con coming up this year. If you have more questions about where your donation is going, feel free to email me at tearsofeden.org at gmail.com. Thanks so much for considering. I'm providing an extra content warning for this episode as it contains a description and discussion of a violent murder. In May of this year, I watched Oxygen's true crime docuseries episode on the murder of Elizabeth McIntosh, which occurred in 1990 on Covenant Theological Seminary's campus in the St. Louis area. At the conclusion of this episode, the investigators alleged the most likely suspect was a man named Michael Johnson who was a janitor at Covenant Seminary at the time of the murder. Aside from the reality that a woman was brutally murdered on a seminary campus, this story is particularly interesting to me as I graduated from Covenant Seminary in 2016. It's of further significance because while I was attending, I didn't know this murder had happened. I'm just like voraciously curious because like when you told me that you were there and that you didn't hear about it. Didn't hear about it. That was insane yep. to me. Yep. I watched the Cold Justice episode with a friend who also attended Covenant. And then we've asked other people, like, did you know about this? Did you know about this? Did you know about this? And the most we've gotten is like, we heard like scary ghost story. Like, don't go to the chapel at night because there was a murder in the basement. And that was the most anyone ever knew about it. How old were you when you knew about the murder? So it happened when you were two. Did you know it happened at two? I witnessed a lot of the stuff that happened around it, but I was told about I was told about the case when I was twelve. This is Carl St. Lucie, the oldest child of Michael Johnson, the suspected murderer of Elizabeth McIntosh. My parents decided to take my sister and I to this park where they were basically like, So yeah, this happened. Your father is innocent and has been framed. I mean, they told us a lot of detail. Among other things, they told us about the the big, like, physical fight that the two of them had the, the night before the murder, which ended up in the newspapers. It's almost like, you know, they wanted a chance to frame the narrative for us before we ever saw any of the documentation. 
This revelation from Carl's parents when they were 12 came on the heels of an article published in Edinburgh, recasting the spotlight on Johnson as the main suspect. Around the time I watched the Cold Justice episode, I'd heard that Carl was speaking out and trying to get justice for Elizabeth. Since their father was the main suspect, I considered reaching out to Carl for an interview. Before I got around to it, Carl emailed me. A few weeks later, we jumped on a call to record this conversation. For many years, I was like a good little Christian boy. Like my sort of MO was to like clear my father's name and, you know, and, and like, I also gained access to like this huge treasure trove of correspondence between my father and the seminary, all of the letters between him and the faculty who like, and your father gave this to you, just gave it to me. Yeah. Because, because I think it, in his mind, like I was sort of the, uh, like a sleeper agent, you know what I mean? Like when the time comes that I would sort of like advocate for him in the way that he expected me to. And it only occurred to me recently, Catherine, that those documents might have been curated. Like, it never occurred to me that that wasn't a full dump. But anyway, I so, I, so I grew up and, you know, like, my dad's innocent, whatever. Then I started to sort of, like, as I was away from home and, like, starting to develop an identity for myself, it was like, wait a second, like, he was hugely physical, physically abusive all the time. Here's a description of the way Elizabeth was murdered. I'll link to an article about this episode in the show notes. Here's a quote from the article. Originally, it was believed to be a hanging because the victim had a ligature around her neck. But there was blood all over the floor, and officers quickly determined that it wasn't a suicide. She had puncture wounds in her neck, defensive wounds to her hands, and bruises all over her body. She'd been hung by a VCR cord. End quote. Johnson originally became a suspect because McIntosh and Johnson were not on friendly terms, She'd gone over his head to talk to his boss when requesting cleaning supplies. And, quoting from the article again, Johnson was known to have a short fuse and had allegedly been abusive to his wife and children. It also set off alarms that there was a discrepancy in his initial statement about when he was in the chapel on the morning of the murder. He told police he was there at 7.10 a.m., but had told a witness he had a 6.30 a.m. meeting with McIntosh. Based on witness statements, the murder occurred between 4.50 and 6.20 a.m., end quote. I started to be like, there's clearly more to this than, mm-hmm. you know, what I've been told about this case. And so it, my sort of fury around this moved from trying to clear my father's name and trying to find justice for Elizabeth because my my feeling has always been what happened to her was tremendously unjust. Absolutely. And if there's any part I can play as someone who is perhaps more affected by this than anybody else, mm-hmm. like I want to be a part of seeking justice for her because, you know, regardless of, I mean, my and my dad never said anything compassionate about her. He was always like, she was a bitch and whatnot. Like, I mean, you know. Because she appeared to be a very competent woman who knew her mind, who was going to a different seminary because Covenant was too conservative, like corrected his spelling. How dare she? Oh my God. He told her no. She went over his head. This is all stuff in the cold justice documentary. So this is like, like they have verifiable (laughs) evidence. They have the memos of her doing that. Like, of course he thought she was a bitch. Oh my God. Oh my God. And Catherine, like I'll I'll say that there was a lot in that episode. Like I never had seen 
crime scene photos. I knew what had happened, but I didn't know. I had never seen the mm. before. Yeah. Yeah. Do you mind Ooh, just taking yeah, a minute to tell me like how you felt watching that and knowing that your father was a suspect in this case? Yeah. I mean, gosh, so many feelings. I've watched it now probably about a half dozen times with various people. <laughs> I would say like my first takeaway was like, wow, they did a really good job of taking like the broad strokes of the forensics case and distilling it into 45 minutes. This has just been like a life consuming pile of stuff that I've had to make meaning for for 20 years. And to see it all kind of distilled into a 45 minute package like was revelatory. I mean, mm -hmm. and then, and, and if like I, I, personally believe that it was certainly possible that my father you know like i understand why he's the prime suspect i'll say that mm -hmm. um and in fact like i was largely the reason that this case was reopened in 2019 it was interesting to see details that i had given george hodak and the other policemen i i wrote george hodak a letter in 2019 that largely reopened the i personally think that my father was mostly angry with my mom and that Elizabeth was an easy target for him to like misdirect his rage. I definitely felt like, and they talk about that in the episode of just kind of like building up, building up, building up. There were other things happening yeah. and it was like opportunity. It, yeah, it just, there was, there was a lot going on there. The investigators say that the crime seemed personal and the murder was committed in rage. Unfortunately, after DNA testing, the only evidence they have supporting Johnson as the main suspect is circumstantial. There likely won't ever be any conviction. I want you to take note of the fact that, like, as far as I know, the only time anyone in leadership at Covenant Seminary has ever even acknowledged the murder of Elizabeth is in their response to my letter that I've been sending around, which is on their website. Here we turn our focus to Covenant Seminary and their response to the murder. The letter Carl is referring to is part of a large email campaign Carl engaged in attempting to get the Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA, to address how Covenant has seemingly failed to acknowledge the murder. But it's, you know, it's very milk toast. It's like, we believe that this mischaracterizes a fact, mm -hmm. and, you know, you know, and there's like a statement from the chief of police at CCPD saying this is like an ongoing investigation. And then like a little third paragraph that's like, you know, we mourn for those who were like hurt by this, by this murder of Elizabeth McIntosh. And like, we long to see it like solved or whatever. And I was like, okay. Right. Fine. <laughs> but as far as I know, they've never once publicly acknowledged this until now. And it's weird. It's weird that they haven't done that. And so for me, I... I came away from that episode being like, wait a second, you're not going to like do any analysis on the fact that like this woman was utterly forgotten, that she was completely yeah. erased from an institutional memory. Yeah. Like that to me is as much a part of this story as anything else. Mm -hmm. And so my effort, like I think on one, like one way that my sort of little campaign has sort of appeared to people is like, I'm saying to Covenant, like meh, like I was in danger and like now I'm gonna like be a big pain in the ass because like you're coming after my dad and it's like no that's not the case like I do think I, I personally I, I think what everyone else thinks about my my dad's guilt yeah but I'm here to say that like there is a problem in this institution that children are are always sidelined there's never any thought mm -hmm. of protection for children that women are throttled 
Like, it occurred to me, I thought about this, and I was like, what if Brian Chappell had been the one to be, to be murdered? For listeners, this is a former president of Covenant Seminary. What if Brian Chappell had been the one to be, to be murdered? Like, they would, oh have been, my God. they would have called it Chapel Chapel, and then that would be the discussion <laughs> we're having. Do you know what I mean? He never would have heard the end of it. And that was the thing, I think, that was has slowly, like, I am just like this reality of, like, I attended this seminary where they covered up this story and didn't and didn't even just like commemorate or memorialize this woman who was who went to seminary even I mean it was weird for me to be at seminary as a woman it at PCA as a woman but she went like decades before I went and it was probably extremely weird and she was like a pioneer for women at the seminary so the fact that they covered it up it was like i'm like literally standing in their view of women like that is what is happening right now yeah Yeah. and it's so crazy i'm going to add here a little bit of my own experience with the pca allegedly following a pattern of protecting itself and the men who run the institutions a couple years ago i did a podcast series sharing the stories of two women who had allegedly been sexually harassed by a pastor in the PCA. I wrote members of the highest tier in the national government of the PCA, asking them what they were doing to address situations of clergy abuse, sharing that I knew of three cases happening in real time where people had been abused by pastors in the PCA. Two members responded sharing how they were addressing domestic abuse. When I replied to them to reiterate that I wasn't asking them about domestic abuse, though that's extremely important, I was asking about clergy abuse. I received no response. I'll be honest, I got the feeling they didn't want to acknowledge such a thing as clergy abuse ever happened in the PCA. Much like the institutions seemed to want to pretend this murder on their denominational campus never happened. The PCA's attitude on like queer people and, and women and children is like, it's getting worse. Oh, it's it's true because they're digging in their heels. It's like a battle right now. Yeah. And they're determined to win. And it's going to continue to get worse. This is the patriarchy fighting back. I think we're in a moment now with evangelical Christianity in this country where we're starting to see how it's just a bunch of like arrested development eight-year-old boys who were taught nothing about consent. Like Mm -hmm. trying to wield political power. And it's sad because like they're so insecure. They're so unwilling to take accountability. They're so unwilling to hear from the perspective of anyone who isn't a straight, cis, white, Christian man. Mm -hmm. I think the way that these churches are arranged, like in terms of a confederacy is a real, like it also makes systemic problems impossible to address because because that was kind of my, that was my sort of impulse was like the only way that I could ever get any alliance around this is to literally write each pastor individually. There's no other way. You can't gather them in a room. There's no way to do it. And so for me, like at the end of the day, like I'm sick of seeing the ways that women, children, people of color and queer people are just grist for the mill mm-hmm. of the of the prestige of people and and for the erasure of, of people like Elizabeth McIntosh and the fact that like my father has had like I mean aside from like he's not he's not living with any I mean he's old and 
frail and looks like he's having a bad time in life but like he's never really had any like consequences for the for the way he be- uh. behaved around us you know and so my whole thing is to say that I really, really liked the way Shiny Happy People ended where like the guy who's been sort of talking through was like, the thing you have to do is you just have to tell the truth. You just have to stand up and you have to tell the truth. And it's not easy, but it really is that simple. And like, that's the thing that I feel like I've been saying to people. I don't know. Like, I don't know necessarily what all the steps are. Like for me, like I'm, I'm on a tear and like, I would be happy to see the world cleansed of Christianity, but I know that that's not everyone's take. And I also understand that I don't have to, I don't like people don't have to agree with me on that point to have a, to, to, to foster alliance about the fact that these systems are deeply broken and they require yeah. fundamental change, whether that means destruction or reimagining or like a, a very, very intentional sort of deconstruction of the power structures that are in place. Mm-hmm. But I think that, I think that sometimes too, we can get in this space of thinking that like, oh, it's just like this, it's just like this niche fundamentalist thing that's happening where I'm trying to say to people, no, like, these are the people that are infiltrating government. That's what one one of the things Johnny Happy People revealed is like, this isn't a fringe, weird, freaky people who are just living in a bunker. They are active and moving and extremely militant. And I appreciate like, what you said and i think that what you are doing reveals why survivors come forward and like people are like when you are willing to come forward and put stuff on instagram or write an article or write a book and and risk the lawsuits and and the censure and the and the loss of community and the and the people who will withdraw because they think that you have become unhinged or you're bitter or you're angry the reason why so many people come forward is i think a lot of it is just like the cost of silence has just become too high oh my god and then you and then you're like these people system or persons have constructed the narrative. And I just want a chance to tell people that that's not the only story. You can decide what you want to believe. You can do what you want with this information, but I just want people to know there's another side of this story. And I think it's really important for just survivors to hear that. And then just people in general, like this is why survivors come forward. This is why they take this risk. This is why they expose themselves because it's not to get attention. It's definitely not to get money because very few of us ever make money off of it. Um, It's not all of the reasons that they say. It's like, you just get to this point where you're like, I can't, I can't keep this in anymore. And also like the other thing that I want to say to people too, is like, you know, and I, I don't think that everyone needs to take this approach, but like for me, I feel like an important exercise for me was to take all the things that they thought were vile and unmentionable and terrible about me and just take them into my persona. Like I know a vile <laughs> faggot who sucks cock and you better believe that every, like I was like, let me tell you something like the fact that like I'm a, I'm an apostate faggot who enjoys sucking cock and like taking cock in my ass and that I'm, that I have a stronger sense of justice than any other PCA pastor I have met. Throwing that in your face is its own reward. Mm-hmm. Who's the vile person now? Because they're shamed, they're shamed at the way that, uh, at my righteous ind- indignation about this. Mm-hmm. They, they know that they could never, they don't have the authenticity or the flexibility. Mm-hmm. You know? 
And that's that's one thing that I found like, and again, one thing that I found myself saying to like mental health practitioners lately is like, I I feel like people want to talk about things like forgiveness and like you know like reactive abuse or something like in a totally decontextualized way. And what I want to tell people is like, oh, like my my life is a disaster <laughs> but like yeah. i'm so happy that it's that way because for it to be any other way i would be so miserable mm -hmm. do you know like mm -hmm. there are vicissitudes to the way that we that we grow through this and i think that every stage of that requires our presence mm -hmm. and our care and our compassion you know yeah absolutely well this has been so great it went by so fast thank you Catherine. it's so it's great been to so me. interesting <laughs> yeah i i feel like yeah we could i i can't wait till we get to like sit mint juleps like on a porch side. i know right <laughs> yeah, so, much. so i just want to take a moment to say to elizabeth mcintosh you deserve to have your story remembered i attended the same seminary a few decades later i know i would have liked you i'm pretty sure we would have been friends. It isn't right how your demand for what you needed and expectation to be treated fairly was received on that campus. You were likely murdered for it. It's a male-dominated world, a world that uses God and the Bible to protect that dominance. Yet even in that environment, you dared to make demands, correct the spelling of your colleague, and fight back against your attacker. You died with your acceptance letter to a different seminary on your person. Reading between the lines, it seems your desire to move to a different seminary was your effort to say you deserved better. And you did. You did not deserve what happened to you, and you definitely did not deserve to have your story erased. I can suggest that your murder, and its erasure from Covenant Seminary's history, is perhaps a glimpse into how the denomination itself erases women and silences their cries for justice. Let this episode be a memorial to you and every woman who sought to pioneer a place for women in spaces where they have often been unwelcome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.